Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it is the 24th of March, 2012, and I'm here with Audrey Waters, virtually here with Audrey Waters, to talk about the last two weeks in educational technology news. Audrey from Hack Education. Hi, uh, Audrey. Hello. I missed, uh, missed talking with you last week. So <laughs> <laughs> I did, too. Um, I'm I've decided that this week we're we're going to end up categorizing everything either as a MacGuffin, a red herring, <laughs> or a breakthrough. <laughs> I think we've got a lot more a uh, uh, lot more MacGuffins than uh, than breakthroughs. Maybe we'll see. I, why don't we start in reverse order? Because I thought that that particular um, post and and you got uh, that idea from Stephen Downs thinking about Khan Academy. Would you explain what a MacGuffin is? And, um, and and how it actually relates to the core of what's taking place? Um, a MacGuffin is a, it's a term most often associated with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, he's, credit, he's often credited with inventing it. And it's, um, you can see the MacGuffin often in his suspense movies. So it's the object that sort of, in some ways, initiates the plot. It gets the story going, but it's never... It's never actually what the story's about. So the, one of the most famous examples of a MacGuffin is is the bag of money that um, Janet Lee's character steals in Psycho. So the 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 um, her uh, <clears throat> her taking that money sort of starts her off on on the story. But you know, I mean, if if you've seen Psycho quickly, you know that the story becomes about something else. And the way in which sort of Hitchcock builds suspense is initially through the object, but then he moves it to talking about and thinking about human relationships and oftentimes our, you know, our psychological motivations. And so Stephen Downs just mentioned the MacGuffin in passing in one of the stories on his old daily um, newsletter. And it just struck me as a, as a pretty profound observation about, you know, I mean, obviously about thinking about what is it that gets people started on the story of education, of education technology, of learning, um, but how much is the MacGuffin sort of not the story, right? The, um, and the story has to become, um, well, I mean, in, in Hitchcock, but I think I would argue in learning as well, the, the story has to become about people. It has to become a connection between, um, between, you know, between people, between the the audience and what you're um, what you're learning, um, and so I thought that you know, and I think that too often we think we focus on. I mean, and this is where MacGuffin gets confused with red herring sometimes. Too often we, but too often we do focus on that object piece, and we forget. We seem to forget that that's really just the start of the story. That the MacGuffin isn't the MacGuffin isn't the story. It's just a device to get us started. It was a really brilliant distinction for me, though, because. Um, a MacGuffin is a positive, right? I mean, in the it leads you into something, and I think we'll get into that when we talk about the Audrey test. <laughs> a little teaser there, but I but I, but I think if if the initiative, interest, desire starts in one place and ends up in somewhere else, then you'd say that's a real positive versus a red herring, which really detracts and distracts. From the core issues, right? I mean, and I and I think that you know, I mean, I think that there are you know, I think probably film scholars would probably debate this too. And I think that there, um, oftentimes, I think some we do we do, um, especially if we're being critical of of some of the gadgetry, particularly if we're talking about an object. Sometimes the gadget the gadgetry does feel like a distraction. Um, and I mean, and this is something I talk about a lot too. Like, are we talking about shiny objects, or are we talking about teaching and learning? But if you see if you see it instead of as a red herring as a MacGuffin, then then that object should be intriguing enough, right? Compelling enough that that you're drawn into this drawn into this narrative. That I mean, ideally, of course, um, beco becomes about becomes about education. And there will also be true breakthroughs. Yes. So some of some something that may look like a MacGuffin or even a red herring could actually turn out to be a real breakthrough, and I guess the importance would be to, to kind of be assessing as you go along and making sure that you're not sort of too quickly categorizing something. Right. I think so. Okay. Um, Class Connect. This was an interesting story because I keep hearing about Class Connect, and uh, um, and I'm wondering about sharing. We've seen so many sort of lesson plan sharing projects over so many years and and my question is what's the moment of share 
when when is it that people want to share and is it the lesson plan and is class connect getting something right here i think class connect is an interesting story for me in a number of ways partially because the the actual um the story of the entrepreneur is a really interesting one er- eric simons is very young he's uh i think he's 19 um and he um, he has he has a really compelling story about sort of why he became an education entrepreneur. I mean, it very much has to do with sort of his own um, struggles in in the classroom. But he's been stewing on this idea of build of of his startup for over a year now, and sort of run into it a number of obstacles. And um, but he, I think he's on to something here with with this notion of the of what what I call the the GitHub. The GitHub for for class lessons, and that's a it's a model it's a it's a model based on a on a, on a technological solution which allows you to share and version and fork your your code. It's always attributed back to the main branch, but because things are openly licensed, you can um, you can sort of um, you can fork it, you can take it down a different path, or you can use it um, and and share it with other people, or you can sort of give back to the to the original, and it's always—I mean—it's always attributed, and all of these different versions are, are tracked. I think it's a really interesting. Um, if he can pull it, you know, he's uh, a—he's a whiz. So if he—if he's pulled off this technologically, I think it's a great foundation for people to sort of build upon, um, build upon sort of the the ethic of sharing on top of this technology of sharing. I can tell that you. I, it it seemed to me that you liked him and liked where this was going. My pushback would be that if you go to a conference, if you go to a place where educators are talking with each other, that the, that the point of share is more at the idea level than it is the lesson plan. Mm-hmm. I don't see educators bringing lesson plans to conferences and swapping them. I'm not a teacher. I don't know. But I worry that we've thought that the lesson plan was the moment of share, but I'm not sure it is. That's that's interesting. Actually, um, the... Um, the what's it called Prof Hacker, which is the chronicle of higher ed's um, sort of more techie blog, actually wrote about forking your syllabus the other day, and the syllabus is it's not quite it's not quite the same as the as the K twelve lesson plan. The syllabus is of course like more the, the overarch the overarching sort of narrative of where your class is going, but they they talked about sort of the difference between creating a syllabus from scratch, whether it's for you know intro to um, you know American history or um, you know, uh, uh, cellular biology, but they, they talked about sort of sharing syllabus syllabi and a tool like, a tool like, um, like class connects could be an interesting way of thinking about it in that, in that way too. So tracking what other people are doing in a, in a class, um, whether it's in a, you know, the lesson plan level is in a particular day or over the, over the entire class, um, seeing what other people are doing and then being able to sort of tweak it yourself, but then give, but then the other pieces sort of give that back so that you aren't just the, 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 the action of sharing isn't just the taking what other people are sharing. It's actually recognizing that, you know, that there's a place for you to to give back what you've, what you've done. Interesting. Okay. You spoke to Jared Kosulich. Yes. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. And I loved, this was short, but I love this idea of making things hackable. Yeah, I thought I thought that this was a this was part of the um, the Mozilla research that I'd done, and Jared had reached out to me saying that he was working on a web based uh, tool. And what I loved about what he's built, it's called Peanutty, is that it's 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 not just sort of here's here's how to build something in um, in HTML. It's actually a it's actually physics-based problem solving that sort of lets you um, really take apart what happens in the what happens in the screen and you can see the code and you can absolutely sort of tweak and play with the code all in the service of ideally doing a prob- solving the problem but you can also sort of take it in other directions as well so I thought that this was a really an interesting way and particularly using games and puzzles to think about um, to think about an on-ramp to to problem solving and problem solving with with programming. I think he makes the point that things are going, you know, get increasingly complex, and yeah. as they get increasingly complex, they're harder to hack. Right. And it's the hack that 
you know, sort of is the moment of engagement. I just loved that thinking about, okay, so how do you take things that long-term have complexity in them and build the hack in early, um, you know, in the same way that, um, you know, the hands-on science projects are kind of early built-in hack. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the hacking piece is is really um, is really important. I, I think that um, because I think that to me, I mean, I think hacking. You know, obviously, hacking has lots of definitions, and I my the name of my blog is Hack Education for a reason. But a, a hack is something that I think um, you that anybody can do, and it is this powerful thing where you can sort of you sort of get to see you get to seize and adjust and take apart and rebuild. Um, things yourself for your own for your own purposes, not sort of for not because institutions say it should look this way or professionals or the experts say. So then Laura Blankenship talks about middle school computer science and especially girls. What did she have to say? Yeah, uh, Laura and I have been friends for a long time, and she's uh, she has an interesting background like mine. Her background is in literature, not in not in computer science, and. It's it's been interesting. I I read her blog, um, Geeky Mom blog, and it's been interesting watching her experiences with um, the girls who don't want to learn, or or how do I want to say this? Who seem who seem very resistant to learning the things that I think a lot of us tab is easy. So she she was talking about how the the students thought that Scratch was too hard, um, and I and. Um, so, so she does spends a lot of time sort of thinking about how do, how you know how do we how do we build sort of creative problem thinking curious students when you run up against whether it's an age or the culture that says eh I don't want to um, I don't it, it's too hard don't make me think so which is really sort of that core moment of teaching. That's so, so magical, right? Yes. So I have an eighth grade girl, and she has a, an English teacher who, whom she loves and adores, who's helped her see the magic in literature. Mm-hmm. So that would, again, be an argument for me that, you know, that that's not a unique moment. That's part of the role of a teacher that right. tech often doesn't really get. Right. And I think that, you know, it's interesting, too, um, she's, uh, you know, Laura's, Teaching a bunch of different grades, and she's the 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 sixth graders that she's teaching actually have had some very basic web building skills, unlike this particular group of eighth graders. And so she just was making some interesting connections about sort of where do we start people thinking about uh, you know thinking about computational thinking because according to you know a traditional computer science the AP science um, direction, it's not start you don't start with the web you start with Java. Um, you do start with programming, and so how do we get people on board if the traditional model is something that's not appealing to them, um, and sort of even sort of the, the the easier on ramps to programming don't seem like the right fit? What is big history? <laughs> so big history is. Um, it's a multidisciplinary way of thinking about history, not just human history, um, and not just sort of history since um, humans have sort of had the self-awareness to think about uh, think about their um, role this way. But it's actually looking at the the entire history of the cosmos. Um, so it's history. It's the history of every single thing ever since the beginning of time. Um, it's a it's a new field that sort of blends, obviously. Um, you know, a, a bunch of different fields from history and archaeology to biology, um, you know, climatology, geology, astronomy. Um, and Microsoft created an interesting tool last week, or they, they released an interesting tool called ChronoZoom that's a visualization tool that lets you actually sort of move through the history of the universe, if you will, um, and and sort of visualize visualize it. So it's a it's a sort of a first step to sort of how do you even wrap your mind around um, around this concept? Interesting. More to come, I would imagine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, talk about uh, Minecraft for the classroom. Um, I am a huge fan of Minecraft. I I will admit that. Um, I I love I love video games and one of the things I 
love about Minecraft is that it is so open-ended that you can, it's a, I mean, it, you really do, it's a, called a sandbox game because you get to really, you really are literally building your world. There's no, there's no saving the princess, there's no missions to complete, there's no goals, it's open-ended. You can do what you want with with a, a world in which you have to mine the resources and then construct, um, sort of const construct and build your world. So that makes it a really interesting tool for using in the classroom, right up into the point where there are some uh, pretty, uh, there's some challenges, I think, if you're going to run um, your own servers um, to, to and uh, make a, a multiplayer environment um, in the classroom. And so, um, Joel Levin, who has, um, he's sort of the, at the front of sort of pushing, pushing teachers to think about using Minecraft, has, he's, he's a teacher, and he's actually started his own company to help, to help this process along the way. So he does some consulting. He talks with, um, you know, helping teachers think through how they would use Minecraft in the classroom. But he's also built, um, um, working to build an add-on to make some of these things easier so to make it easier to launch server Minecraft servers and then he's added a bunch of interesting features too to sort of in some ways I mean I think this is this is where it's somewhat controversial in some ways it, it does close it could be used to sort of close down on those open-ended opportunities with Minecraft um, uh, you could have more structured play as opposed to unstructured play um, but I think he's he's helping build out a set of tools to make it um, to make teachers or to make Minecraft work better in in the classroom, and he does this with second graders. So, so uh, a, a good friend of mine, Alice Keeler, who's a math teacher in Fresno, talks a lot about the um, the value in gaming of achieving levels versus kind of how we typically grade, which is you get a grade on an aspect of a subject and then you move on, maybe without having achieved any kind of mastery. Um, I don't know Minecraft, but from your description, is that value brought through or is, is that not addressed as well in this Minecraft for EDU? Um, it definitely doesn't. I mean, I think that with the Minecraft for EDU, um, you are able to sort of make create assignments and set goals um, for for your students uh, to do. But I would say that the that the that the missions that you would set yourself in Minecraft they're they're self they're sort of self driven self appointed missions that you'd set in Minecraft. Um, and there are you know there are a limited amount of of resources. There are amazing, really just amazing things that people have 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 built um, with it. And so it's it's less about um, you're going to level up or you're going to rescue the princess or you're going to you know complete these missions than it is deciding for yourself what what you want to build and, and achieving that. Hmm. So I like that. Okay, um, I had really mixed reactions to your flipping the conference post. Mm -hmm. In part because I feel like this is what we tried to do five years ago, or did I think with EduBloggerCon mm -hmm. and with a lot of the unconference activities, and then especially with our virtual conferences the last few years, with a focus on inclusion rather than on vetted presentations. Yeah. So is this a new story, or is it just somebody else kind of discovering this awkward parallel between what happens in conferences and what happens in the classroom? I would say that. I mean, I think that. I think that the I think the unconferences get closer to flipping the conference. I think that the virtual conference probably is a gesture in that same way as well. I just get the sense that I mean I think it is, I think it is in part the fact that it is very dreary. And it, speaking from my experience, having been to many events now back to back, it's very dreary to go from panel to panel and and listen to presentations and then find at the end, you know, when you have all of these fabulous people in a room that you really only have 15 minutes to sort of talk, um, or to have, to hold a discussion. Um, and sort of how do you, how do you rethink what happens in, in when you have people together? I would say the unconference is, is part of that. Uh, I think that, you know, having the community come together and decide what the, what the, topics to discuss will be rather than having a set of formal a formal agenda that you must move through um, but I, th I also really liked the idea 
when you think of flipping the conference, it very much is, the, or in terms of sort of flipping the, the classroom, it's assign the homework, you know, the homework, or assign the, the substance, the, the, the readings, the, the lectures as homework, and when you're, when you're face-to-face, do other things. And so I don't know if there's sort of a way to get more of that, more of the, the things that we're all supposed to be reading and talking about done ahead of time so that when we are together, um, the, again, you don't have to spend a lot of time covering ground. Everyone already sort of knows what we're supposed to be talking about. Yeah, of course I loved the idea. <laughs> I was like, is there something I'm missing here? Yeah. You know, this was the big conversation five years ago. Right. Is it just the is is it just the connection of the phrasing, you know, from flip the classroom to flip the conference? I mean, it felt like five years ago those of us who gathered for Edu- the first EduBloggerCon we flipped the conference, and and we've been doing it, you know, for the last five years. Um, I don't know. That was my mixed emotion. Was is this really a new story? Okay, so. Um, this is sort of we're discovering that we could actually probably do our regular show in half an hour because we're sort of have covered a, a week's worth of uh, <laughs> posts from you, but um, we're getting into the the news from last week, your your roundup news. But what is the lead commission? <laughs> what is the lead commission? This is a joke. Um, sorry for the Department of Ethics. <laughs> <laughs> so. One of the things that made me so excited to to back the story up was when the Obama administration back in 2010 released its National Education Technology Plan. Cuz it was a pretty it was a pretty interesting document that was talking about embracing open source, embracing openly um openly licensed educational content. It was talking about moving to the cloud, kids and their mobile devices, schools should have high-speed internet, we should be aware of, you know, all of the things that we that we talk about in terms of sort of bringing forward the, the, the technology in the classroom to what perhaps more more consumers are, are accustomed to, right? Always having having you know having twenty four seven access to um, via your mobile device. So it was a pretty I thought it was a pretty interesting stake in the ground that the Obama administration um, was going to support um, these initiatives. And sort of uh, nothing not, nothing. Nothing much has happened. And now, this past week, the government unveiled a website to announce the formation of a commission, the lead commission, to sort of talk about how they're going to develop a blueprint to implement this plan that they wrote two years ago. And it just seemed to me like bureaucracy at its finest. How funny. You also, for the first time last week, and then and again this week, addressed this issue of Facebook passwords. Last week it was uh, schools demanding a Facebook password. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of frankly stunned by these stories, especially the ones that are coming out of public agencies. And I have a hard time not kind of making uh, maybe you know sort of two large comparisons with 1984 and Fahrenheit 451. You know, this idea, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't care about sharing your password what's the trend here and is i mean this just feels really bad to me this feels really bad to me and uh i think the 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 irony seems to be that here's facebook who um you know mark zuckerberg has been touting for years now that privacy is done we need to get over it there's no more privacy um uh, and <laughs> now that suddenly the, the 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 logical extension of that is okay. Well, then let's have your Facebook password. Now suddenly this week, Facebook has said no. Wait, that's that's draw, crossing the line, um, and Facebook is clarifying that you know, clarifying that you do not you, you if you in fact if you hand over your password to someone else, you're violating terms of service, and that they're they're seeing about ways that they can actually protect protect users, possibly sue companies that would demand. Uh, would demand uh, potential applicants or employees hand over that information. So it is a bit of it is a bit of an irony that you know this 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 company that's sort of laughed about the end laughed at the end of privacy in its terms is now sort of having to become a, a defender for uh, for people's for people's privacy. Yeah, this this one I don't think is uh, over soon, but um, but clearly that people would think it's okay. It would the the analogy is for me is is it, would it be okay for someone to come open your mail? Right? I would just I just don't. Why do we think that's okay in the social media world? Yeah, I don't understand. I don't 
I don't understand it at all. And I think that, you know, I think that in education, we've seen conversations around around this, whether it's, um, you know, students or teachers. And a couple more school districts now are looking at banning Facebook um, interactions between students and teachers. Um, and there was a, a court case this week, again, about what students post online. Do they have First Amendment rights to post things about teachers online? So I think that we, I mean, I do see that there's a lot of, a lot of issues um, around this, but this, this notion that we should just hand over the, the keys to any, of our, to, to any of our transactions, whether they're financial transactions, social transactions, um, our, like you said, our mail, our email, um, it's, it just to me seems absolutely unacceptable. Especially for public agencies. Um, that federal district court uh, ruling in Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, they actually ruled against the students, right? Right. That the schools um, demanding, what, what did the school demand, to take down the post? The, stu- the school suspended a student for posting, he posted a rap, a rap song online um, that, that, um, that talked about some of the coaches at the school and they suspended him. And we've, we've talked about this before. I mean, it's really not clear what what students' First Amendment rights are in terms of um, their online, um, th- what they say online about school, particularly when it's something that they aren't doing on school property. They're not using school internet or school computers to, to create this content, but that's still about school. Um, and so lots of different rulings across the country about what students, what students write to free speech, what students, um, do students have a right to free speech in terms of online content about school. Mississippi says no. (laughs) Well, this didn't hinge on whether or not the allegations of the coaches um, abusing the girls was accurate. It was just whether or not the students had the right to say anything? Correct. Interesting. Okay, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica announces they're no longer going to be creating a print version. Uh, The first thing I thought of was this question of whether or not... um, uh, we are actually in an historical moment, right? There, there, you made some reference in one post to this, that every generation thinks that they're sort of at the cusp of history. Yeah. So, does does Encyclopedia Britannica stopping the production of their print version give us a clue that we may actually be at the cusp of history? I'm I'm not sure if we are or not. I mean, and I think a lot of uh, the initial reaction was that, you know, I mean, and of course this is a, like, I think, what, 250, almost 250-year-old publication um, that will no longer be printed. So that does make it sound as though it's a, you know, a, um, a historical shift. But I thought that Tim Carmody from Wired, to me, had the best analysis, particularly when people were sort of pointing the finger at Wikipedia, a free online um you know, updated in real time encyclopedia as the reason that the the Encyclopedia Britannica was was shuttering. And he said that it it was actually a different sort of shift and that, that the shift was that, that no longer was it a, a marker of class stature and intellectual stature to have a collection of encyclopedias on your bookshelf at home. The 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 object that people look to that marks you as a member of the intellectual elite was the personal computer, and so and the the, the PC was the was because if you remember in Carta um, and uh, and any number in fact I think Encyclopedia Britannica too started coming with these other you know with lots of CD ROMs and stuff to 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 put to put this content in other in other formats other than the printed book. So if it's a historical moment, I would say it's a historical moment connected to computers and less this moment today of the of the of the of the web um, and of, of the internet um, okay in the big history scheme I think it's hard to, <laughs> yes right. it's a historical moment <laughs> Did, were you making a connection there no <laughs> <laughs> okay so so Ted Ed announced or Ted announces Ted Ed right? The world's greatest teachers. Um, you know, that really reminded me, I've I made a connection that I had not made before. Um, and the, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, uh, it was, and it was about um, coaching and 
see if I can find it. But anyway, it was the story was about a piano teacher who had produced a huge number of piano prodigies. The teacher herself wasn't a brilliant pianist, but she knew how to coach students into becoming really good pianists. So again, I anytime there's this sense of we're going to show you the world's greatest teachers, I really have a pause. It just doesn't feel to me like that's a good way of thinking about teaching. What was your response to the TED yeah, I mean, I think that, that that was my response as well. I, I think, I mean, in a number of ways. Partially, I think that that they're that they're. I I think that the that the whole idea of of the TED talks to me sort of um, has a number of a number of problems that I'd like to poke at. It seems to me to be a a, a very elitist um, uh, event, and I think that the TEDx ones that have sort of um, sprung out across the country, across the world, or of are the locally organized ones are a bit different. But the the TED event itself seems to to be um, rather an elitist event, and I don't know how much you can do with a ten minute conversation or a ten minute lecture. I mean, I think that you can do some pretty entertaining, thought provoking, interesting things. I mean, I think that there are plenty of TED talks that I th- I find sort of funny or engaging or compelling to watch. But I'm not sure that I would call that teaching. Um, and I think that if I think of the, the, the teachers that have meant the most to me, it, it wasn't a 10-minute spiel that they gave that, that was transformative in my own experience with learning. Um, so I feel like there's a disconnect between, um, between the, the, the things that made me think of my favorite teachers, my, my, the world, you know, Audrey's greatest teachers, and is that something that you can put into a two, I mean, they said like a two minute, two to eight minute animated video. It sort of left me not, not that excited. So this form of video, whether it's TED or Khan Academy, MacGuffin or Red Herring? <laughs> well, I think, I think it's a Red Herring if we think that that's the end of the story, right? If we think that learning exists in, if we think that that, that those video content is sort of the end of the story and that, that's, that's, the, that's the story, that's the learning, that's the learning object, um, that's, a, that's a Red Herring. I think it could be a MacGuffin if, it's, if, it makes us think, if it makes us think more critically about sort of pathways into um, engagement, pathways into... Um, you know, intrigue. And pathways into um, creation. Right. I mean, I think one of the best things about TED is just the fact that other things have been created. Now, the TEDx for me is a great example of not flipping the conference. Right. I mean, that's sort of been my, you know, beef with the TEDx's. But a lot of people are involved in the creation process. So for me, that's not necessarily a red herring. It would be a MacGuffin because yeah. it actually is leading people to creation, whereas you know, the format of the conference may not be the long-term value, but the creation is. Yes. Okay, so how do you really feel about a Khan Academy versus Wikipedia online? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, I must say, the, the, the news of Khan Academy releasing an iPad app, I mean, was not exciting. Of course, Khan Academy was on 60 Minutes, which I... I I didn't watch. Um, he was on Con- or sixty minutes. I guess it was last weekend. Um, but this this wild and uncritical praise for Khan Academy always rubs me the wrong way. And of course, now that th- with a bunch of headlines that said that now that Khan Academy is on the iPad, that somehow this changes everything and this is opening up access to have more people see the videos. I just I mean, I really... To the, to the masses who can afford an to iPad, the masses, right? To the great unwashed masses. To the, exactly. Who weren't able to find the YouTube app on their iPad and find his videos that way, apparently. But no, the, the Wikipedia piece I thought was really interesting. So this is, this is a new tool um, that Wikipedia works with. It's called the QX Reader. And it allows... It, now they've, they've um, made it... They've ported it to the Sugar OS, which is the operating system for the one child left behind devices. And it means that the entire Wikipedia, um, the, co- the contents of Wikipedia will be available offline for people that use these devices. To me, that's, you, that's powerful. Did you just say the no child left behind? Devices? Oh, I did. Did you mean, the one, one, did you mean the one laptop so, per child? I meant one laptop per child. Yeah. No, the, well, yeah. 
That's funny. That's a little Freudian slip there. Anyway, acronym confusion. Yes. So that is interesting. Although, sort of fascinatingly for me, having spent years and years evangelizing open source, there's such power in the narrative that sometimes even the most powerfully good ideas struggle just because the narrative of Khan Academy is so strong. Yeah. Um, Gates Foundation and Scholastic study 10,000 teachers to find out what they think about their profession. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, the, the, um, and, the, and sort of um, depressing, too, I think, in terms of thinking about sort of just like this lack of, um, lack of satisfaction of, of, their, of their job, but then also this fact that teachers are able to recognize the, the struggles that their students are facing, the things like you know, homelessness, an increase in homelessness, an increase in poverty, that, that these aren't part of the conversations that we're, that, that I, that we're necessarily having about why school is not working. Yeah, I mean, it's such contradictory news coming out of the foundations. Um, that felt to me like the opportunity to really drill down on some on interesting issues. You then later talk about Pearson, the Pearson CEO being elected to the MacArthur Foundation. Yeah. I just don't quite know how to place these stories in context i don't know either i mean it's you know i feel as though there's the you know the there's so much work to be done and it feels as though you know the things that, that could be transformative quickly get co-opted the things that could be interesting quickly become dulled um i'm not sure what to make all of it of all of it either Okay, loved the Audrey test post. <laughs> what, what is the Audrey test? Well, this was, um, you know, Greg Wilson from Software Carpentry has had asked me to do the, has been asking me to do this for a while now, and it's it's based on the notion of the Joel test. Um, Joel Spolsky is the founder of Stack Overflow, which is a pretty popular um, programming site in which you can sort of go and uh, uh, um, sort of find like crowdsourced solutions. But Joel has a test that he it's sort of a, a test that he uses to sort of see if your if your if your software engineering teams are sort of up up to snuff in his eyes. It's a pretty quick twelve yes or no questions, um, and it's sort of about best practices in terms of um, developing code, developing your plan, developing your team, making a good place for your team to work. And so Greg's been asking me to write a similar a similar test to to Joel's, and it was actually really hard. I've been stewing on it for for a long time, but finally I sat down um, and threw together the things that, and this is based on the things that you and I have talked about before too, of sort of what, what do we look for when we have conversations with people about ways in which we can tell if they are, if they have thought at all, at all critically about what teaching and learning means when they, when they set off down this path to become education entrepreneurs. I, of course, came up with several of my own. But the one I like best came in your comment section. Somebody said, what makes you think that you have any clue of what you are doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that would be actually a really good question to ask. I mean, you know, um, why do you think you actually are bringing value here? And, and I, I loved the post. You got pushback. I did get pushback. And I, I thought some of the pushback played right into the story as a whole. It sure but I actually did. thought some of the other pushback was um, a little eye-opening and thoughtful to me. How, you know, what was your response to the pushback? Well, I thought that some of the pushback, particularly from, um, I guess, would-be entrepreneurs that did not want to leave their name, not surprisingly, or some did, but they thought that they thought they asked me sort of, um, like they just did. I think that they didn't even seem to understand what I was uh, what I was asking for. One person I thought said. You know, if this is the sort of reception that I'm going to get in education, maybe I'll work on a different field. And I thought, good riddance, goodbye. <laughs> um. yeah. The entrepreneurs did seem to respond in such a way as to indicate that they still don't, they don't understand or see the problem. Correct. And I'm trying to remember, you made a comparison with some other industry. I can't remember what it was, but you said, you know, well, you know what would make you think, you, oh, bridge building. Mm-hmm. You know, if you'd never built a bridge before and you hadn't studied the history or structural, you know, physics, what would make you think you could jump in and build a bridge? And I think that's a thoughtful message to people. I, I think they kind of took it the wrong way, that you're excluding us or you're creating unfair and, and inappropriate barriers. I think actually understanding the context, especially 
for those of us who really are grappling with what are the purposes of education, right? it's reasonable to ask that you have an answer to those. Right. I mean, and I think that, you know, this is, you know, I think that this was in some ways the, you know, the, the, the reaction that I got was that was, that was the test, right? I mean, it was interesting thinking about the people who, who thought, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to learn this, right? I'm, I'm too busy building my company or this to me, like one of the responses, I think that the, what the response on ed surge was, that's all well and good, but isn't this just the same sort of book learning that's part of the problem? Like, how is this actually, how is this actually um, make a difference for people who want to do something? And I thought, well, that to me too, that sort of indicates that um, if you if you don't recognize some of those names, uh, some of those concepts as having to do with making and building and thinking about how learning works that way, again, you're sort of um, you're, the, the, the reaction isn't sort of, the, the reaction to the test was sort of, seemed to me like more of the test itself than, than actually the minutia of whether or not you knew, you know, know or have thought about some of these, some of these questions. A point that came up in the comments, but I didn't think got fully fleshed out was the difference, the differences in the definitions of success. Meaning an entrepreneur can say, if I'm iterating, if people are telling me what they want, and then people are buying my product, isn't that success? And actually, I thought that's a good answer, mm -hmm. which is if you're an entrepreneur, you know, maybe your job isn't really to, to figure out the deep complexities of the pedagogy, but just what gets adopted and what doesn't. I mean, that's what entrepreneurs do. You know, but there is that deeper question of what is true success. And I, sort of the irony for me was I think it's unlikely you're going to have the short-term success if you haven't actually thought about the deeper success. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, this, was, this, was, this was a really interesting, uh, really interesting exercise for me to think through, um, to think through the things. I mean, to try to put down on paper the things that do run through my mind each and every time I talk to an entrepreneur. And I should say... Um, that Steve Silvius from Three Ring had the unfortunate experience of sort of talking with me on the phone. I was the day I was writing the test, and so he <laughs> was like, "Oh, am I going to pass the Andrew test?" I said, "Don't worry." About we'll, it. we'll get to Steve in just a second. Okay, so you did a post on a sort of your thoughts so far on Scratch for HTML5. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of where are you at this point? So I've wrapped up um, one one month's worth of work for Mozilla, and I'm not sure. I'm circling back around with them this week to sort of see what what's next, what they what they think should be next. Um, but it was, you know, the the whole process was was really interesting to me to have a chance to talk with a lot of educators and educators both in sort of formal settings and in informal settings um, about about these questions of, um, you know. Uh, about these questions of, sort of how do we build, how do we create more web builders? Everyone seemed to recognize that the problems of web literacy were uh, were an issue, but there was so much then, I think, uh, the response, it was really the responses were quite fractured then when you asked sort of what what do we do about it? Um, and I think that that's, that has to be the main thing that I um, take back to, to Mozilla, despite the fact that I think most people would agree that that um, that we we really don't do a good job in understanding how the web how the web works. It's whether it's components or 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 building building for the web that that there didn't seem to be a lot of agreement about the fact that Mozilla is building a, a tool a, to to help people learn um, HTML5 was the right solution at all. Well, I I kind of left that post wondering. Um, should this be something couched within the concept of bringing it into schools at all? Meaning, is this, a, this should if you if you don't if you have this discussion about what can you do to help youth have a better understanding of the web and their affordances, should it even be a discussion around schooling? I think that that's a really good question, and you know it goes back to some of the. Um, some of the questions that you know Laura Blankenship was facing with teaching her middle school girls um, programming as well, um, and this you know these are the things that I've talked about with several educators too because the, I mean if, there is very little computer science instruction in school in this country. Um, there's some there's sort of technology skills are taught, um, sort of using computers using software, but very little 
very little CS. Um, and the CS curriculum tends to focus on, it doesn't focus on the web. Um, it, it doesn't focus on HTML at all, let alone HTML5. Um, it focuses on Java. And so how, like, do we need to then change that, change that curriculum? Or, like you said, or should we be thinking about ways in which we can support other interests outside the class, outside the school, outside the classroom, or outside outside the CS classroom too? Fascinating. Well, we'll look forward to hearing what the next step is. Uh, for my Future of Education interview series this week, I interviewed David Warlock, yes, who also attended the, yes. <laughs> the Beyond the Textbook uh, event that Discovery sponsored, and. Um, I, I didn't know. Any, I don't know any other way to describe this than that. David's perception of textbook funding felt to me like an unholy balance. He said, "Well, he came out with a renewed appreciation for the role of the textbook, and that um, that that the textbook ends up as a as a concept providing funding, and that if you get rid of the textbook, you're going to get rid of an enormous amount of funding." And I thought, well, and I said, I kind of challenged them, and I said. Well, but if that funding come, continues to come through, even if it's dollars, if it's being used in the wrong ways, do you even want that funding? Um, was that just the conversation David and I had, or was that reflected in the larger conversation at the event? Um, I think that was a conversation between the two of you. And I actually thought that his his blog post after the event was really was really eye opening um, in that way as well, because that wasn't that wasn't my takeaway. But I thought that it was a fairly astute one on his on his part to recognize that discovery whose whose new product is called a tech book not a textbook we're having to sort of couch it in terms of textbookness so they could tap into the allotment the you know district state school allotment for textbooks and if you know and and david I thought made a very good argument that if we rail against the textbook and say, let's get rid of the textbook, that those dollars aren't necessarily, I mean, we'd, we'd be foolish to believe that those dollars, those millions of dollars will flood back into the school budget, more likely they'll disappear. And so do we have to, like, how can we strategically think about um, changing what, you know, changing what the, what the um, sort of changing what it's purchased um, without losing that that pool of money, which I thought was a, an interesting a, an interesting conundrum and one that I don't I don't know I, I don't know the answer to and and one that I'm not sure that's a, I'm not sure that to me I'm not sure I'm willing to sort of think about things in, in that way because I, I do think that sort of repack, repackaging bad practices or bad practice that's not fair repack repackage re repackaging old practices under sort of new formats isn't uh, sort of new and shiny technology formats isn't isn't necessarily the 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 fight that I'm really interested in in waging the post is really worth reading uh, your post i um i need to go back and kind of i, I don't think i actually read david's post after the event um, but I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Gary Steger who um, warns us against incrementalism which is the idea that we can make things better just by making small changes and that would be my concern you know that um, yes the, the um, intention might be really good but it still leaves us with this concept of the textbook that I'm not convinced personally uh, is really valuable to us yeah. um, I loved the tweet quotes. The one of the things that that was one of the things that was really, um, really interesting for me about the Beyond the Textbook Forum, which I should think. I mean, Discovery was flew out. I think about twenty of us to participate in this day long event, and the morning we spent talking about sort of what the textbook is digital and otherwise. And then we had a, a, a more, we broke into small groups and talked about what it could be. Like, you know, no holds barred, our imaginations, what would this, if we were to sort of read, you know, hit the reset button, what would this look like? And I had the fortune of sitting at the troublemaker table with um, John, John Becker, Alec Koros, David Jakes, Wes Fryer. I hope Wes doesn't mind me saying he was at the troublemaker table, but he was. And so it was. We had a really interesting and imaginative conversation about what what this what this could be. And then it was really 
interesting to then to spend the afternoon looking at what Discovery had built and thinking that there is still such a gulf um, between the, the sort of imagining what we want and a, a, what we have right now in a digital format. Yeah, I loved uh, Angela Myers' quote. Was she at the event or just yes. watching yeah. it vir- virtually? Uh, she said, the big shift isn't that content is digital, it's that learning culture is participatory. And I thought that was profoundly um, incisive for me. Although, not having been there and not having heard the fuller conversation. Um, okay, so let's move into three ring here because uh, this is sort of interesting. I mean, it's uh, you know somewhat related. Um it's the it's, it's thinking about tools that aggregate, but in this case, student work. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking Evernote. <laughs> I was reading those. I kept thinking, you know, this is uh, really valuable. Uh, looks looks very interesting, but could I do this in Evernote? Was that fair? Did I is there is there more depth and complexity here? I think what they've built right now, the answer is probably yes. Um, but I think that what they what they want to build out eventually is to have um, to have more shareable portfolios. And I'm not sure as it stands, Evernote has that ability to sort of for the, like if you've snapped a bunch of snapped a bunch of photos or made a bunch of notes in Evernote, you can't then sort of hand over that notebook to. I mean, I guess you can sort of share things publicly. I think that the that they that they want to. This is not a lot like Evernote, but I think they want an interface so that teachers can easily scan things, and so that parents and students and administrators can also have a um, have some have a have a look at these portfolios as well. Loved the idea. Had two sort of major questions. One was the language around this: gathering student work, staff self and peer assessment, student leading parent conferences felt to me like these were practices that didn't necessarily come out of the technology mm-hmm. and that the, that the promise of the technology doesn't necessarily mean people will use it that way. Right. That was number one for me. And the second was, uh, I still feel like this is being driven the wrong direction. I really want this to be parent and student driven so that this collection over the course of years tips the balance that the, that the, that the parents and the student go to a teacher and say, here's my collected work over the last eight years. Here's what I'm really interested in, and here's where I thrive, and here's where I don't. And this felt to me like it still kept things in the wrong, on the wrong side of the equation. That's, that's, a, that's actually a really interesting reaction. I mean, I think that my thoughts were, too, I mean, I've been seeing a number of, you know, a number of tools come out again that are thinking about, you know, creating the portfolios, thinking about digitizing student content um and I, we've talked about this before too is like worrying about what ha- like who, do the students actually own this own the content do they own the process or is this something is this something that's being done to their work that then their work sort of again is sort of rest, rested out of their control um into another format i agree um kickboard Yes. The data dashboard for teachers, the, the two sides of data, mm-hmm. right? Um, I keep coming back to Deming, right? Deming uh, helped us to understand the need for the frontline worker to, to know how to manage data and how to have that impact their processes. But it also feels like uh, there was a recognition of the, the necessity of simplicity. Yeah. And I looked at Kickboard and I thought, I've seen so many projects, educational and otherwise, that try and put everything in one place. Right. And I just, I, my thought is, that's just not going to happen. That, that, that's my, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think that particularly as, this, as the buzzwords around data, the stakes get higher and higher. I mean, I, I am really interested in finding ways that, um, that, for one thing, that we can track the track data that isn't just about, assessment score, test scores and numbers, right? I mean, data doesn't necessarily mean numbers. Data can be, data is is any sort of, you know, qualitative and quantitative um, stuff that happens in the classroom. So I love the idea of having better tools to sort of be able to jot down all of the things, all of the things that happen that matter, that might give us more insight into, into, um, into a student. But I think you're precisely right. Once you've done that, You've actually built something that's rather rather cumbersome, and 
um, you know, um, Rafael Corrales, who's the CEO of LearnBoost, I remember when I first talked to him about his grade book, that, that he said that the, his biggest that his biggest competitor wasn't Pearson, his biggest competitor was the pencil and paper. And I think that until, and I think that that's, I think that if pencil and paper is going to win against kickboard every day, because even if you've got notes jotted down on sticky notes and in, you know, in a variety of different places, that until it's actually easier to, to put it into a, a a computer interface, you know, to, to track it in some sort of software program. I just don't think that we're going to pay attention to the sort of rich things that occur, and we really are only going to put into the interface the, the numbers and the grades, and we'll, we'll sort of end up with the sort of same problem that, you know, we continue to face, which is this obsession over assessment. I kept thinking, it's not a tool problem, it's a training problem. The tool is easier to solve than the training, but it felt to me like that's the that the core is understanding the value of data and how that relates to specific um, helping in learning. And the tool is easy to build, even a even a tool that has promises like Kickboard. Mm-hmm. But I kept coming back to it's it's a, it's about the training or the perspective yeah. rather than the tool. Yeah. Okay. Hey, we're almost done. Uh, <laughs> We've talked about the federal district court ruling. Um, however, we haven't talked about the fact that uh, the state of education could be a threat to our national security. Yeah, this is this is chilling to me. This this uh, the Council of Foreign Relations released a report this week, um, penned, and I think that this speaks volumes. Penned by Condoleezza Rice and Joel Klein. Um, Klein is the former chancellor of schools, New York Public Schools, and he now works for. Um, Rupert Murdoch's News Corps. So they penned a report that that, um, talked about national security and they listed our school system as a a threat to national security. Our failing schools, the lack of um, our failure to turn out people who understand the STEM fields in particular, um, that that students are not going to be, um, uh, that are not sort of workforce ready and this is a national security threat. And I think that I'm deeply troubled when we label things as a national security threat uh, because I think that then all sorts of other political practices kick in that I don't think we want anywhere near our children, um, let alone our you know, teachers, schools, etc. We'll just let there be a little pause, a silent pause. <laughs> Is this there. a Mike Daisy pause, like on? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, what did the new Pew study tell us about smartphone use of teenagers? The, the, I mean, it's not surprising that that you know teen teens are teens continue to be um, text messaging fiends. Um, Girls in particular send and receive almost a hundred texts a day, uh, the median number of texts, um, and that they're you know smartphone smartphones. Although I think they're still um, seen primarily as an as a um, something that adults possess. More and more teens do have smartphones, and I think that we're seeing you know we're seeing the Android Android phones come down and be incredibly. Um, you know, if you have a data plan, it's pretty easy to get your hands on an Android phone for fairly cheap. And so teens are definitely becoming smartphone users, but they are still text messaging. They're not, they're not necessarily whole-scale abandoning texting for other ways of communicating through apps. And again, uh, part of what I hope we're learning is that learning is social or being reminded of it. And these are social tools. And of course, they're being used because they fill a social value to right. the students, uh, to the youth. And, and hopefully we'll be able to begin to figure out that that, that social value is, is worth really looking at carefully in terms of, of learning. Um, Teach for America's effectiveness. Is this something new? I, that didn't feel new to me. I thought we kind of knew that Teach for America teachers weren't necessarily any more effective than other teachers. Um, the Shinker blog always does some really interesting look at at, um, at politics around educational data, and they took a sort of a deep deep dive into um, I think what is I think the it's really the rhetoric around the rhetoric around TFAs. These are highly qualified, highly intelligent students, and so therefore, so the logic goes, they are more effective teachers. 
And I think that um, the article just sort of pushed back on that notion and said that really these, they are no, they don't do any better than other teachers do in terms, in terms of teaching. Which is not Teach for America's message, right? I mean, right. their message is, as I hear their message, it is that they're learning really valuable things about how to create successful classrooms in dysfunctional schools. Right. And, and so this would say that maybe they're not. Right. Correct. And to end on a really high note, uh, yes. uh, the Pearson CEO is elected to the MacArthur Board of MacArthur Foundation Board of Directors. Are we all cheering? Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there goes our genius grant, Steve. We'll never get one now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I was ever in the running. <laughs> Audrey, thanks so much. Two great weeks. I, I have to tell you, I always enjoy uh, reading these posts. I feel like um, it's kind of the highlight of my week. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. That's that's very flattering. This is great. I really missed I really missed talking with you last week, and I come across things and I say, oh, I can't wait till Steve and I get to talk about it. So. <laughs> have a great week. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye.